0: Okay, welcome back to another session of uh, the assistant situation conversation with me today is Jordan Kitchen, golf course superintendent at Hamilton Golf and Country Club in Ancaster, Ontario, which is suburban Toronto, correct? Correct. All right. Uh, Jordan and I talked um, a little while, wa- a little bit prior to our first roundtable, which he participated in. And we both felt that he had some more to offer and some more we'd like to talk about. So um, here we are with a uh, somewhat shorter follow-up session. So uh, Jordan, you said before that you spent most of your career as an assistant, and you've only been
1: uh, promoted to superintendent the last couple of years. Correct. Yeah, I've spent um, seven of my years, seven of my 10 years at Hamilton as an assistant. Uh, there were, I guess, two of those years I was associate, and then in 2019, became interim and then uh, full superintendent.
0: That was under Rod
1: Trainer, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, I think he was
0: arguably our first TurfNet member in Canada, I think. He was a member for years.
1: Was he? That wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Rod yeah. was always, uh, always engaged. Yeah, didn't really participate that much, but he paid his bill anyway.
0: So <laughs> that's a good thing. But uh, so since the round table, um, I guess, have you had further thoughts and or has anyone um, discussed any of this with you, either on your staff or anywhere else?
1: So, great question. Uh, I've had several conversations. Um, some with my peers, superintendents. Also had a conversation with a now salesman, who was an assistant, and uh, asked him, you know, about that leap and with the underlying current of why he made that switch. And you know, his, his reasons echo many of the reasons that have been mentioned so far. Um, not sure that we came up with any solutions, um, but uh, you know, had an opportunity to drill down on some of these things and uh, you know, take myself back to my early days as an assistant And I've got some some thoughts I'd love to share. Fire away. You had asked me about, you know, these proactive steps that assistants and supers can take together. And uh, I took myself back to when I kind of came out of school. And turf is an interesting profession in that there are often many ways that you can achieve the end goal. And I was probably... An annoyance to Rod in the sense that you know a lot of turf students come to school and they think they know a lot more than they they know a lot about growing turf. Do they know how to apply that in the settings? That is a golf course, a public golf course. Do they know the nuances? Um, do they have a true appreciation for some of the logistical challenges on the ground? Um, we've got all these great concepts about how we want to how we should do it. Um, but I'm not sure that I had a true appreciation and respect for some of the on-the-ground challenges. And that isn't something that I would be alone with. I had plenty of assistant colleagues who, you know, we could find lots of opportunities to say, well, that wasn't that didn't make sense. Uh, so this concept of, of trust and appreciation and communication um, is resonating with me at the moment. I addressed the
0: uh, graduates of the Rutgers uh, Professional Turf Management School, the two-year certificate program, the other, uh, the other afternoon. And basically, my presentation was following sort of on the lines of what you discussed. And I basically told them, look, you know your NPs, Ks, you know your Azoxystrobin's and your strobilurins and your microdociums and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you some uh, life lessons, if you will, some about turf management, some about career, some about just about life in general, Um, that I doubt that they had uh, learned in school. I said, you you know, I referenced this conversation that's been going on about the role of the assistant and and the, the assistant situation, if you will, and I said, It's going to be up to you guys to change this. Well, how can you do that? You're just a second assistant or an assistant or whatever. And I think my point was to open the dialogue. In other words, don't go in and say, okay, look, I don't want to work this number of hours anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I would approach the superintendent with saying, what can we do to um, invoke greater efficiencies, if you will, perhaps change scheduling. Um, you know, look at all uh, aspects and, and segments of the day-to-day operations <clears throat> to see where you're spinning wheels or where you know you're you're taking time to do things that
1: you don't necessarily have to do. I'm going to kind of take a tangent but I think it it will swing right back around um to put myself back in those shoes I remember you know and I I can't give you a specific example but you know I'm sure that we've done things when I was an assistant and I was like why would we do that like that just seems goofy and it's almost like you know you what's that saying about you know um something about being like your parents once you sit in the chair and you are a super, you know, I found myself doing those same things. The difference is I understand why. Um, And and I agree with you Um, when it comes to communication, you know, starting out with what you don't want, instead of asking a question or asking the why or being open-minded is really, really important. And I've been fortunate in my career um, to have had, mentors like Rod and and others uh, who have at times sat me down and said, you know, you got a great work ethic, you got got it together, but you got to be a little bit more open-minded than you are, right? You see the big picture, but there's just a little bit more on the edges that you really do need to understand. Uh, And in those moments I could either go, you know what? what the heck do they know? Or I could walk away and deeply think about it and go, you know what? I don't know what I don't know. And let's just relax a little bit and try and understand.
0: Do you think that there are some superintendents who sort of cling to the old uh, you know grind them up and chew them chew them out kind of a thing do you think there are there's a segment of superintendents today who perhaps feel threatened by a new way of doing things sure. i guess but i guess because why i ask is that it would seem to me that a better work life balance if you will would certainly benefit The superintendents, because again, just look at the look at the outflow into sales. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder whether that fear is just driven by the fact that it's just different and it's not what they're comfortable with. Humans are hugely creatures of habit. Sure, and you know, good, bad, or indifferent. If we get patterns, we get entrenched in our own patterns. We don't really often want to change, even if it's for the better it's uncomfortable sure
0: we had a or there was a uh, an assistant who had originally signed up for one of our um earlier round tables and he was from a good club a uh, you know top 20 club and um which i was a little surprised i, I know the uh, i know the superintendent he works with who is one of the taskmasters. Is one of the drill sergeants. You know, um, and uh, I don't know. An hour or two before we were to kick off, he sent an email and said that you know I gotta I've gotta beg off of this because you know whatever with the club, which didn't surprise me. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a shame, but on the other hand, again. Uh, knowing that the superintendent is one of the guys who um, hasn't changed much, I don't believe from you know back in the day when he came up and worked him into the ground, uh, but did it for a couple of years. So you know, I guess part of the reason being that he feels that you know they could get put that on the, put that club on their resume and that's going to open doors and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless. I just I just found that that interesting, and I think that's that type of person might feel somewhat or that his domain if you will, or his uh, control might be threatened somewhat by more empowerment more accountability, uh, more respect perhaps um, you know working from the top on down
1: yeah. The one challenge, particularly in, in in golf operations, is that it's very personality driven. Um, because they are flat, smaller organizations, um, you know, the personality of the leader absolutely influences. Um, I've listened to the second round table, which I thought was excellent. And, and one of those the, the, the things that one of the supers brought up was about advocacy. You know, it's the Course and Grounds Department. It's the Course and Grounds team here at Hamilton. I'm simply the, the leader. I pick the direction. I set the goals. I, I can't do all the work on my own. Uh, and, and the credit has to go to the people who make it happen, right? Um, I'm like the conductor, if you will. And by flat, you, you mean a
0: flat organizational hierarchy where you've got Correct. a couple of levels, but you've got a lot of people stretching out from that. Central Correct.
1: Floor. Yeah. yeah, And because they're smaller organizations, they tend not to have as developed human resource departments or policies, which can affect sometimes development, not always. So then it becomes much more based on the personality. Yeah. Paul
0: McCormick said the other day that um, out in Atlantic Canada, that they've pretty much given up on... Um, Assistance or having assistance, just, I guess, because they haven't, there aren't enough golf courses in the area. He's in uh, Prince Edward Island, but that would include Nova Scotia and, and New Brunswick also, I would think. Um, that, uh, But he said that there's a ready source of young people willing to come in and do the work, and and he said very often he can keep them four, five, six years, which my response to that was, boy, if you've got that kind of local labor supply, even if they aren't assistant caliber, and he did lament the fact that he used to speak at a, or used to teach at a uh, local, you know, community college type of uh, uh, turf program that's since defunct. But um, how's your uh, labor supply there? Are you um, in the typical metro area, Darth, of uh, supply of labor?
1: Yeah, labor is a challenge. That's, And I mean, seasonal labor is a challenge. We're doing better this year. Um, last year, past two years, have been extremely challenging. And... The most interesting thing about the labor challenges is that it really doesn't matter what budget you have. Uh, I had a conversation with a colleague in Toronto who had just as many issues, if not more, as we had last year. I spoke with a former superintendent, mentor of mine at a little public course where I started, and he was asking me, "What's what's the situation? I said, I'd love to tell you I have the magic cure, but we're in the same boat. If I can, for a second, I'd just like to circle back on Paul's comment, because I was quite surprised that, you know, when you say that you've given up on assistance, that caught me off guard. But as I prepared and reflected on s- several of the conversations, I do wonder if he's onto something there. Do we have an abundance of turf, school graduates waiting to come to work at at Hamilton and other big private clubs. No, there's a few and we can we do our best to attract them, however, we do have individuals that do want consistent labor that enjoy the work and it took me back to a decision that we made in 2015 at Hamilton, we were a seven sorry, we were a a crew of seven full-time individuals from super, we had two mechanics, two assistants, an irrigation tech, well, on and on. And in order to You're 18 holes? We are 27, plus a driving range, plus a short course. So- It'll keep seven people busy. Keep seven people busy, exactly. And one of the decisions that we made in the then labor challenges of those days was to hire three more full-time people. Were they turf? Did they have turf educations? No, but had they been in the industry and had experience? Yes, and did it stabilize our organization at the time? Yes, it did. And those individuals have gone on to be assistants at other clubs, some of them are now superintendents. And we've kept that model, and it has provided a certain amount of stability. Now, how long would you typically keep that type of person?
0: So, Or how long, I guess, how long would it take them if they were so inclined to be ready to move on to a bona fide assistant position somewhere else?
1: Three to five years. And I'm a big and so, so
0: you're in the same situation as Paul would be that you know, if you can get good qualified people to stay three to five years in, in this, certainly in this labor market, you know, I think way ahead of the game. And I don't know whether it was one of the other round tables or whatever that somebody mentioned that either they or somebody near them has gone you know, let the pendulum swing way the other way and has gone to a a very high number of part-time people, which is more the norm, I think. Um, You know, so in terms of trying to balance out scheduling and things like that, where, you know, they can bring people in to sort of to uh, mow and go or run and gun or whatever you want to call it, or come in for afternoon shifts or whatever, that kind of thing.
1: The the question to me becomes, and we talked about this in our first round table, and I I made mention of this. I have tried to do everything I can to balance the schedules for the full timers. Um, Not at the expense of seasonal employees, but because seasonal employees work an eight month season, uh, their, their earning potential is limited. For those that are here 12 months a year, finding that balance in to me is really important. Um, and because we've been brave enough to try some different schedules, I can really see the improvement in them. And I will say it was probably me who made the suggestion of trying every third weekend. And I did it as not an experiment, but I said, I wanna try this. I can't make any promises, but if it works, we'll keep with it. So when we talk about balance, my focus largely has been on for the full-time assistants and other full-time employees. And I don't know whether that's to our detriment i mean in our ability to attract others particularly on the seasonal side but i thought it was important to start there
0: now did you say that and again i'm i'm a lot of, a lot of conversations are kind of blurring together but um, did you say that you tried the every third weekend and then shifted to every other weekend
1: so we started with every third due to the pandemic and some labor challenges for one year we so when returned. you say every third you work one out of three my assistants work one out of three okay. i work um every saturday and try and take sundays off um or come in and to kind of breeze through but not get up at the same time on sundays my assistants work a rotating every third so there's three of them And they are on the every third rotation because of the pandemic. I, and I, I guess that would be 2000. We did go back to every other and boy, by August, I had three zombies. Hmm. And if you're going to listen to this, don't be offended by that, but they're just, they're taught their patients. They're yeah, they just. They weren't as sharp as they were when we did every third
0: well that's that manifestation of of um, both uh, fatigue and uh, stress and in a, the inability or the um lack of opportunity to uh just chill you know step back and take whatever time you need to uh let go of it, forget about it for a couple of days, to me, that's, that's huge. I mean, let's face it, working um, 12 on and two off, it's, it's not an easy schedule for anybody.
1: Yeah, and here's another question. I, I like to beg questions. So a really good friend of mine is an engineer, and uh, there are studies that show that the optimal workday I think it's actually less than eight hours. I think you're right. Why is it that in turf, we've turned to the science and we say, we'll do whatever the science says. But when it comes to managing people, we don't even consider what science says. Well, there you go. And I think what you're referencing now that
0: that I'm thinking back about it is that the, the performance or the capabilities of people declines rapidly after six or seven hours, whatever it is. So to keep them to 10, 10 hours or even 12 hours, if you look at those, those last four hours compared to the first four in terms of what they get done, I'm sure there's a stark difference.
1: Right. Anyway, I just find it kind of, maybe it's the word ironic, that when it comes to managing turf, we're all about the science. When it comes to managing the people, it's whatever makes us feel good. That's an interesting
0: uh, observation, I'll be honest with you. I've never thought about. What else you got? Anything?
1: Yeah, this other, uh, this other thought that's somewhat related is... Um, and it, it goes back to uh, a comment that uh, Richard made in the second round table about super or bust and how many of, because he's on, forgive me, he's on one of the Carolina assistant. Carolina's
0: super- assistant committee.
1: Yeah. And. Um, That's Richard are- Brown at Orangeburg Country Club. That, and I've had the opportunity to, to meet Richard. We did the super experience with Toro together and, um, and so he was commenting on how it's super robust. And some of his colleagues, you know, they bounce around, some put down roots. And definitely there's been an interesting trend in Canada where assisted superintendents really aren't getting many opportunities at the up at the private A and B level clubs to become superintendents. Right. They're, they're, they're promoting internally. And the conversation over the past, I'd say five to 10 years, particularly at the board and general manager COO level has been a shift towards succession planning, which bodes well for this conversation about the assistance situation. Because when we talk about succession planning, now we're looking at organizations holistically, we're looking at our pipeline and development Instead of hiring from outside, that makes it challenging for those that bounce around, and then it also makes it challenging for those who kind of sit tight because how do you know which way it's going to go? Plus, so if
0: you're a superintendent who's forty years old and you've got a crackerjack assistant who you know would be perfect guy to to uh, you know fill your shoes down the road is he going to wait 20 years (laughs) or whatever it is
1: well and so there was a comment about professional assistants i'm fortunate to have um what i would call a professional assistant she's been with the club 35 years um really yes uh tracy uh she's uh, we call the glue she makes it happen she allows me her presence at the club allows me to do things like this and teach and do all of those things. Um, And I think we're going to continue to see opportunities created and space created for the professional assistant. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that
0: Richard said in that uh, that other round table was that he's very wary of making a move for a move's sake hmm. and doesn't want to chase the additional five or 10,000 bucks a year, whatever it is, if it's going to put him in a worse place
1: mm-hmm.
0: in term, not, not physical place, but a worse place in terms of, you know, happiness, enjoyment, both for himself, professionally, career wise, and for his family, you mentioned that, um, you know he and his wife like where they live and you know that kind of thing one of uh, a a superintendent from uh, the met area in uh, I think he's in Connecticut a long-term turf net guy sent me an email or replied to uh, one of the one of the tweets in that Steve cook thread and he said, um, during your conversations, ask the assistants who have made moves whether they're better off since mm-hmm. they've done it. And I think that's a, a very valid point. I think a lot of guys, and this is where, I don't know whether it was Richard or somebody else said that um, when a an assistant jumps at an open... an open superintendent job to get that title, but it's at a, you know, middle of the road facility. It has to be careful about getting stuck Mm -hmm. in terms of upward mobility from there, which, uh, you know, is another consideration that's uh, that there's no easy answer
1: Mm -hmm. for this whole thing. For sure. Um, yeah, those were really the the kind of the, I think the things that that popped with me is this you know this 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 concept of being open minded, of you know if you're a young assistant asking the questions, um, you know I would if I was going to circle back on on Rod and my relationship, um, I was probably the young ankle biter, and that's what he wanted when he hired me if I can say that he wanted somebody who was going to challenge him who was going to you know, think about the new ways and ask questions. Was the answer to the question always to my, my queries? Yes. No, it wasn't. Sometimes it was no. But I got enough opportunities where he said yes, that it kept me engaged. Huh. And it moved the organization forward. And I would say that we got the best of both worlds because we've got the balance of his experience and then we had somebody who was gonna to ask questions and think outside the box and ask. You know, I, I asked some questions of, and and it was like, oh, we tried that once, and it actually didn't work out that badly. We could try that again. Hmm. One of our uh, one of our guys, uh,
0: Charlie Fultz, who's down in uh, Virginia. Um, was and I'm, this this is fifteen years ago. Was involved with uh, sort of a management um, consultant company, and uh, it was called the Working Smarter Training Challenge, I think. And this was the kind of thing where you you had X number of sessions, and you got your whole crew together, and one of the, one of the uh, exercises that they did was documenting how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which might sound stupid until you, you take the process. I mean, do you, do you spread the peanut butter on both sides of the bread and put the jelly in between, or, you know, how exactly is this done? And it was it was an exercise that was targeted at process improvement. You know, they they took a look at things like how do you arrange your your uh, mowers and vehicles and stuff in the shop in the morning to get them out in in a reason. You know, in the most efficient method, how do you schedule? You know, do you have a shotgun start, more or less, with all of you guys racing out there? Or do you stagger them by 15 minutes? That You know, that kind of thing. That, um, and I guess the point is to take the time to uh, what, I guess, to challenge the status quo in terms of um, everything that you do. Because with technology and all of that, now here's another question for you, because I think I made the point about the peanut butter sandwich, but um, I think it was Dr. James Hempfling who commented um, on the Steve Cook thread that technology can be used to cut down on labor hours worked. Now I can see that in terms of you know moisture meters, things like that. Can you think of other ways? Uh, you know, in ground soil sensors, you know, all that that kind of thing. Um, can you? And I should probably get him on here to explain that that uh, yeah. that comment. But um, uh, I'm all about you know. I've used technology, and I and I was not. I mean, I bought my first personal computer at, at age 39 and taught myself to use it in case I ever needed those skills. And lo and behold, a year later, I got canned and started TurfNet. So there you go. But I've always been a big proponent of utilizing technology so that I could do as an individual, or now that we, as three guys, um, can do what it would previously take eight or 10 people to do, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so I'm a big fan of that, but on the other hand, I can't necessarily extrapolate that to the golf course because I've never worked on a golf course. So.
1: Fair enough. I think drone technology is going to be a really interesting one. Um, This concept that you can fly your golf course every day that it could see an irrigation leak. It could see You know, a head head that's weeping, uh, a disease outbreak before it happens, an area that's drying down, uh, that kind of information. Are we there yet? Uh, No. Are we getting close? Yes. But this concept that a drone could fly your golf course and you could see all those things, not only is it flying it, but that it identifies them and drew your attention to them. I think that's the future.
0: When that can be ported into these GPS sprayers and that kind of thing, exactly.
1: also is is huge. Yeah, yeah. This concept that you see everything every day and that you know computer programs going, "Hey, you need to look at this, this, and this." That is that's going to help. Um, I think that's probably the biggest one because uh, you can, you know, if you can understand the information, and you can deploy your resources accordingly. There's huge potential for labor savings. I think robotic mowers, um, I'm really interested to see where that comes out. You know, I've always been a big believer. Hamilton has like 120 acres of rough. So I've always said, I, re- I really don't care about a, a robotic greens mower. I want a robotic rough mower. That would be a game changer. That would be an interesting one. Now, the cost and barrier to entry is going to be high, but I think we're going to see that. I don't I don't see behind the curtain, but that's gonna be here eventually. That's gonna help big time. And that's gonna also improve member golf experience big time. Can you imagine playing around a golf and never seeing a rough more? I'm a superintendent and I like the idea of that. Yeah. And not not because it's a complaint, it's because I my opinion is driven by complaints. It's just, it's way more peaceful if you don't hear that mower in the distance. And I know I'll get flack for making that comment, but... Um,
0: so your thought would be you could run them at night or whatever?
1: Run them at night. If Toro makes your irrigation system and they make the mower that's robotic, there's going to be an integration between that and irrigation. There you go. So those are the other you know, things, I think the last one, because I know I want to be respectful of your time is on compensation. And this is uh, maybe I share a few words on this. This is an interesting one. Um, I have two brothers. They're starting. uh, They're both in the construction business and they're starting a business. And I would give any assistant the same advice. And I'm not going to guarantee you that it works. But you're never going to get what you don't ask for. That's the first thing. The worst thing that is ever going to happen is you ask for something and someone says, no, I would take it one step further. If you're serious about your career, don't ask just about a raise, ask about a performance plan or a review where your boss and yourself identify areas where both you and them see opportunities for your career development and tie that to compensation. That brings up my
0: uh, thought with my younger daughter, who's now 36, I guess, and works in the um, real estate industry. But um, she started with the company that she's with now about four years ago. And it's it's in Vermont, but it's one of the it's one of the largest real estate firms, and it's got a construction business. It's got a finance company. It's it's uh, you know it it's it's a pretty big operation. And the owner of that business took six months uh, to, to decide to hire her through a series of. Um, you know, a series of interviews and exercises and things like that. But one of the things he said was that, how much money do you want to make five years out? And, and he encouraged, you know, to go for it. I mean, and the number was more than twice what I've ever made. And, uh, this year, she made three times as much as I've ever made. But the, the point being is that he said, OK, so that's where you want to be. Let's figure out how to get you there. And um, he was uh, he, he hired well and he um, basically said, hired good people and basically set them loose. Very, very long leash, very little, you know, um, uh, oversight other than gentle nudges in one way or another, or, you know, do you, th- what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? As opposed to you need to
1: do this or you need to do that. And she's thrive. Yeah. Which is probably my last thought. And this is a really hard thing for superintendents, but you have to allow your assistants and those key individuals that work for you opportunities to learn, And when I say learn, you need to let them make mistakes, the most valuable lessons you learn in life are from mistakes, and I understand that that's a scary concept. But you have to start small you've got to give them room each of my assistants have a portfolio and that sounds goofy. But I came from studying poli sci once upon a time, and so this you know a government portfolio, one of them takes on. Irrigation, one's IPM, one's operations, they'll have a portfolio, everything that they're responsible for, you know, is enumerated, and they get a lot of autonomy there, and that gives them a sense of ownership, and they're allowed to make mistakes, and that's how we learn. That's one of the points that
0: I made to the, uh, the Rutgers people the other day was that, hey, it's okay to fail. But fail on a small level. Don't, hey, I, don't make I, the big don't make the big mistake. That's
1: right? Yeah. Right. Every valuable lesson I ever learned in my life was because I made a mistake.
0: Well, they said that what's what's the old adage that Thomas Edison tried a thousand prototypes of a light bulb before he found one that worked, and the other one I heard recently was that um, uh, what's it? Uh, Dyson tried five thousand prototypes of that uh, venturi type of uh, bagless vacuum before he was able to bring that to market and I think he's done okay.
1: I, I, I would say I think he has got a pretty good vacuum.
0: Yeah okay Jordan thank you very much we'll uh, wrap this up and anybody else who's got further thoughts or wants to contribute either one-on-one with me like this or in a round table By all means, give me, uh, you know, shoot me a holler on uh, DM on Twitter or send me an email. It's peter.turfnet at gmail.com. Jordan,
1: thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You bet.